Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of visual storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S-Agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is R. Scott Livingood. Professor Livingood, a.k.a. the Seinfeld Sensei, earned his Ph.D. in Strategic Management from the University of Maryland and his Master's of Business Administration and Bachelor of Science in Accounting from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. He worked at KPMG, both in Honolulu and the San Francisco offices, and Honeywell International in the Phoenix and Morristown offices along the way. But his true passion lies in education. He is the lead author of That's Our Turf, Identity Domains and Competitive Dynamics with Rhonda Rieger, published in the Academy of Management and Review, his field's top theoretical outlet, and has been an award-winning teacher, or sensei in Japanese, of strategy and entrepreneurship at numerous universities throughout the United States and to groups around the world. An Iron Man, lover of music, movies, and sports, he's an avid traveler and curious explorer of the world around him. He's also fluent in Japanese and sign language, and that's sign language spelled S-E-I-N. Thank you so much for joining me today, Scott, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Oh, awesome. I'm really excited for this conversation. So to get started, talk to me a little bit about how you got started in business and then transitioned into teaching. Sure. So I actually, my, my freshman year of college, I thought I wanted to be a dentist. I had a, a, a poster of a tooth on my dorm wall and uh, <laughs> pursuing that path. And and then actually, uh, so I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Japan uh, for two years. And that's where I learned Japanese and really became uh, introduced to and enamored by the Japanese culture and things. And at that time, I won't mention what decade that was, but at that time, it was Japan was a world, they were very dominant in, in business and things. And I thought I can use my knowledge of the language and the culture to be successful in business. And so that's how I started down that path. And I, and I love doing what I was doing. I love being out in the corporate world, but I always felt there was something a little bit missing. And so I always wanted to teach, always had that in the back of my mind. I was an accounting undergrad, but I didn't think I could really you know, devote the rest of my life and my heart and soul into accounting. Um, and so I, during my MBA, I actually took a strategy class and all the light bulbs went off. The angels sang and I heard hallelujah and, and realized that the strategy was something that really captured my interest and was really something that I could devote my life's pursuits to. And so that's and then one thing happened, it led to another and I was able to get a PhD and have never looked back. I really enjoy teaching. I love learning. Uh, I just love the environment of academia. And it's just been a, a wonderful journey into strategy and entrepreneurship and international business and other things that have also captured my attention. And I love sharing that with the world and uh, like to do that as much as I can. Wow, it's quite the journey. 
<laughs> I can't believe a, a tooth poster. That's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. That's I love that. It's a great detail. So I'd love to know, you've got this really unique take on teaching strategy and entrepreneurship, and it's rooted in Seinfeld. And so tell me a little bit about how that came to be and how you use Seinfeld uh, to teach your students. Sure. So that's, it's really, it's hard to tell which came first, but it's, I think it's a manifestation of my philosophy of teaching and speaking of philosophy. So it was about 20 years ago, a little over, I was living in Berkeley, California. I was on rotation from KPMG office in Honolulu there in the San Francisco office. And I didn't have a TV. I didn't have really the internet or a smartphone or anything at that point. And so I was looking things and I was commuting back and forth from uh, Berkeley into San Francisco and was just looking for something to keep me occupied. So I went to a, a bookstore and I found a copy of a book called Seinfeld and Philosophy. And this was a bunch of PhDs, really smart people who basically wrote essays about deep philosophical issues and concepts and principles, and then would use examples from Seinfeld. And so I'd always been interested in philosophy, but never really had either the patience or the dedication to dive into such a deep subject. But if you teach me in a way that I can learn and I can understand and in a context that I can relate, that makes the learning process a little bit easier. And so I actually learned a lot about how Kierkegaard might describe Kramer or how you know Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, Jerry does a great job of examining the minutia of life and, and those kinds of things. And so that kind of stuck with me as I became an educator, realizing that I couldn't simply teach just the basics, just the facts, just the theories, just the principles, but I wanted to house it in a way that students could maybe better understand or at least give them a context to which they could better relate. And so that's followed me through. At first, I started off with Far Side comics and Calvin and Hobbes and those kinds of things to bring a little bit of humor or at least a little bit of color into what I was doing. And then that evolved into just me using my favorite show, which is Seinfeld, to teach some of these things. And, and so the more I would watch Seinfeld, I couldn't just sit there and watch and laugh and, and be entertained. There was always that kind of PhD mentality in the back of my mind of, okay, how does this relate to what it is I'm doing in my day job? How does this relate to other aspects of my life? And that has then just evolved into the book that you see, the startup of Seinfeld, that just is a way for me to write down all of my thoughts and put it into one place things that I've been learning and teaching and experiencing for the last couple of decades, I guess. So have you like mapped out every single episode of Seinfeld and mapped it onto an entrepreneurial or strategic lesson for business? I, I haven't been quite that systematic. That's a great idea. I probably should. I did do it informally as I went through. I would just essentially go through each episode and think, okay, what, you know, and I've seen them so many times, I probably have them mostly memorized by now, but at least the context and the stories and things. And I did, I actually wrote it all down. I have a spreadsheet if you want to see it. It's too long and too involved, but a way to put that into, so it's not just entrepreneurship, the next book, I shouldn't probably say that in case someone wants to steal the idea, but the next book is going to be the strategy of Seinfeld, where I do a very similar thing with strategic management principles. And yeah, I do have a quite extensive database of, stories and, and episodes and things that relate to some of my areas of expertise, which in this case happen to be strategy and entrepreneurship. So do you also, beyond the like episodic side of like different examples, do you also take it to a more meta level where you're addressing how the arc and development of Seinfeld itself as a show follows perhaps like the path of the startup from pilot to becoming the biggest thing in the world? Uh, I haven't yet. I haven't taken that angle. Uh, that's yeah, that's more of a deeper dive, yes, into the actual process of the show itself. I just use, and the way the book is set up, which if I can pat myself on the back, I think is somewhat creative and innovative itself, but I, I essentially I'll share or you know present some kind of principle or concept or theory of entrepreneurship. I have a fancy graphic in there to make it look pretty. And then I actually have a link to an edited clip of the show uh, that's on YouTube. And so if you have the actual physical book, there's a QR code that you can use your phone to, you know, watch it actually on your phone. If you have the digital version, you can just click on the button, but it actually transports you essentially into the show. And then it's edited to just only show the parts that are relevant to 
whatever principle or concept I'm trying to teach. And, and so it really is more of a learning technique of those principles as opposed to, and, and using the context of Seinfeld to illustrate those, usually showing what not to do as things with a, in the, the universe of Seinfeld usually tended to not work out the way that they were supposed to. So it's more of a way just to illustrate as a, as a concept there, but I haven't actually necessarily drilled down into the show itself as a startup experience. But I think that's a great idea for a follow-on book for sure. Now you got me like so excited about this just general <laughs> concepts. I'm like, oh man, I wish my MBA program, like I had a one one class was like str strategy with curve your enthusiasm or entrepreneurship with breaking bad or something. You just like really thoroughly imbue it in that because so much of it is just highfalutin theory a lot of times from people who don't necessarily like actually practice anything practice what they preach it's a lot of phds and so it's weird right because of just like the different requirements of academia that put different constraints on like what that actual dynamics can be either in like law school or in business school mm -hmm. absolutely and, and i don't know i don't know if i'm going to revolutionize the way that the teaching is done around the world but that's the idea of it is to again to teach and that's something that's obviously really influenced the way that i teach in general and even outside of the, the halls of academia is really trying to to find ways to teach people in the way they can understand not the way that i want to do it but the way that they can understand either in a language or a situation or context that they can really relate to help them better internalize the material so that they actually learn as opposed to just being talked to by really smart people yeah, I think that's just a great philosophy that's in all too short supply, right? Because you have so many professors. And I knew like when I got to Notre Dame, I had a very underwhelming experience, partially because there was just a lot of TAs and grad students teaching mm. classes, which God bless them, good people. But at the same time, it's not what I was expecting. But then Notre Dame is also like, a I don't know if it's called like a class one research university or something like that. So there's a lot of professors who are there to do really high level research. And they're just forced to teach as part of their contract. And they, a lot of them just have absolutely no business teaching. And so it just becomes this like really boring process of just whether it's just PowerPoint slides or just otherwise being unengaging. And to me, it just lacks a lot of empathy at a fundamental level. It's, hey, why do you think everyone is falling asleep in your class? We're not that tired. Like, it's just like the subject matter or your presentation of the subject matter is boring. And that was always some of the worst is like getting into a class where I love the subject matter. And then the, the professor would just bore me to tears. And it was like, oh, come on. This was supposed to be so fun and cool. And like, how can you suck the life out of that flame of interest and that passion is a uh, yeah that's a travesty really and that's the exact opposite mm. thing we should be fanning the flames and really using this as a way for you to springboard off with a lot of enthusiasm and energy to go pursue that idea or that subject but uh, unfortunately sometimes it does go the other way Oh, yeah. And I think it's borderline criminal, like mm. just extinguishing the flame of curiosity in children <laughs> and young adults. I see it all the time, especially I would say in like math curricula, once especially you get to the middle school and then definitely high school level. It's like a lot of people check out and there's a point at which like, you know, because math is something where it's totally sequential, right? Every right. single thing leads into the next thing. Whereas Something like science, we often do out of order, right? Because there is an order to science of like physics to chemistry to biology. We actually do it in the exact opposite manner. That's right. And yep. it's just, it's nonsensical. And I think if we actually structured things in a way that kept people engaged and made sure that people didn't fall behind, because if you lose one or two bits of really understanding you can't move forward right. so yeah, you, if you didn't yourself, grasp yeah. it yeah if you didn't grasp geometry or trigonometry or like algebra 2 or something like calculus, calculus is just gonna, gonna sure. yeah, it's yeah. not accessible at all and it's not actually that complicated if you do it sequentially and if you do it step by step and we also just take a kind of slow approach to it i've got a five and a seven year old and i was i think i can teach them like all types of math, like a variety of types of math as three and four year olds, because I was like, algebra is not complicated. Like you can teach someone like a plus one equals three, and then just have them understand the symbols and the mystery of it. You know? and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you can find different ways to get those points across that it's oh, no, we're going to seven year lead time, right? <laughs> like you're going to learn addition and 
first grade and you won't touch algebra until seventh grade or something like that. And it, it's just ridiculous. And I think if we had like stickier teaching models and better ways to teach math that people engaged with, you could get through because I remember in grade school, it was like first grade is addition and then a little bit of subtraction. And then it's a little bit of subtraction or it's then a subtraction, a little bit of multiplication, a little bit of division and finally right. division and into longer division. And so we didn't need a whole year to do that. There's like online learning programs now that can teach you like a full year of math, I teach a kid a full year of math in like 90 days and they do it in a fun and engaging way. And so I'm really excited for what the future of education will look like on that front that actually centers what we've learned about teaching, right? Because I think originally there was so little actual research put into it or put drawn up, drawn from to say, how do people actually learn? How do brains work? And what's the best way to structure all this? And so we're still doing a lot of things like from the 1800s. And, Yo, we actually know better ways to do this now. This is ridiculous. And I, it's funny because I have a, a professor friend, colleague at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where she would show a picture from the maybe the 1600s. I guess it had to have been after the, the printing press and things were in, invented. The reason why, and it's a person standing at the lectern and then an audience of students listening to that person. And the reason why that was a teaching method is because there was only one book in the town or in wherever it was. And so the one person who had read the book or could read the book or had possession of the book would then share that knowledge to everybody who was interested in learning whatever happened to be in that book. And if you fast forward that hundreds of years, that's exactly the same way we're teaching now. You have the the professor that they call the, the, what is it? The, the mage on the stage or whatever, but you have the one person standing up there who has the material and then you have rows of students who are sitting there listening and that can be effective. And sometimes maybe that's the best way to do it, but to get stuck in the mindset of that's the only way to do it because that's how we've been doing it for decades or centuries. And that's how it's worked. We're missing a lot of now from my perspective, entrepreneurial opportunities to improve. We should know better by now that there's other better ways. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we need to re-examine what we consider normal or acceptable and find ways to break those paradigms. And so you talked about online learning. A lot of people, there's a lot of downsides of online learning. We lose that socialization. Maybe there's lack of motivation or accountability and those kinds of things. But there are ways for us to reach people in ways that we couldn't before, not only geographically, but also, like you said, more fun and engaging and entertaining ways to help people learn. We need to embrace that and, and take the positives of the interactive, the face-to-face interactive, but combine that with what we've learned about distance learning or online learning or other methods, in my case, using videos from YouTube and those kinds of things, and integrate those together to make it a much more meaningful experience for everybody involved. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it is totally wild to think about even something like Common Core, right? So like Common Core math, everyone grew up with the standard algorithm. And Mm -hmm. for me, when I first saw Common Core math, it was like, oh, this is what my brain was just always doing with numbers. Like I'd pick them apart, put them back together. I'd look at license plates and figure out how can I make these numbers add up or how can I make an equation? It was just like a very mathematical mind. and, Mm -hmm. And that's how I'd like do things and understand the world. And then you have this where people are, would parents like don't understand something and it's not as fast as just you doing the standard algorithm because it's actually trying to teach you what numbers are all about and how they work and not just a rote system. And most adults just couldn't like grok that. They're just like, no. And then they just freak out. Yes, right, right. And it's just, to me, it's just like that resistance is a microcosm of the resistance you get to trying to change anything. And so it's just, oh, I don't understand how to do this. Even if it's going to make my kid better, I don't want them to do it because I don't understand it. And it's just like such a selfish approach. It's very similar to just like the mindset of I went through X, so you should too. Right. You shouldn't have it better, right? It's like, oh, I you know, pain. I had to pay my right. dues. You have to my, do the exact same thing. Oh, totally. Like my parents spanked me. My parents hit me when I was growing up. So I turned out fine. So I can hit you like that kind of shit. It's just, it's insane. And I think it's obviously, yeah, like on that side of things, it's pretty terrible, but it's really even more insidious, I think in education, because it's like, it's so much harder for things to evolve when parents can't really understands oh you can't you're like ashamed that you can't help your kid do their homework because you didn't learn how to do it and you don't have the patience to actually sit with that 
discomfort and move mm -hmm. through it. Or the humility even to admit that, yeah, I don't know all the answers, but I can help you figure them out in another way. Mm -hmm. That's, a, yeah, a, a tough thing to do. And I've actually been humbled recently as I think through, because I think I'm guilty probably just as anybody else. Hopefully I'm trying to break the mold a little bit, but, and, and perhaps part of it has to do with, like you said, how the academic system is set up. But I know early on, and even if you look at my book, is very topical. Uh, and it makes sense of each chapter is a new topic and those kinds of things. I wouldn't necessarily, though, if I was trying to teach somebody about entrepreneurship or about being more entrepreneurial and actually setting something up or going through that process themselves, I wouldn't just give them the book and say, good luck and go forth. And, and I learned this actually recently where I was involved with, I had created some courses for a business partner at Arizona State. Uh, the business partner was Uber. And there it was just a very, created a series of five online courses on entrepreneurship for their in not employees, but for their drivers. Um, and I took a very topical approach to that. So for example, the entrepreneurial finance. I teach basically, you start with your own personal money, you go to friends and family, then you go to maybe angels, investors, or banks, and then VCs, and then you go IPO. And you have really this growth stage model, and it's based on research and academics and all these kinds of things. Then I actually got into another, with another group who's teaching displaced refugees in developing countries. We're creating online courses for them. So right now it's Rwanda, Uganda, Jordan, Israel, and, or sorry, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and Iraq. And I actually had a, an opportunity to travel to Uganda and talk to people in that ecosystem. So I talked to the refugees, I talked to entrepreneurs, I talked to academics, to resource providers, incubators, investors, all of these people. And I realized that just keep teaching something topically is so inappropriate for that kind of a context. If someone wants to start a new business and for them, it's, it's really life-changing. It's not a side hustle. It's not, oh, something maybe I want to just dabble into. This could really literally change not only their lives, but their family lives for generations to come. It's really dire straits and a need for more entrepreneurial activity. But if, if their entrepreneurial idea is I'm going to repair bicycles under a banana tree, they don't need to learn about IPOs or venture capitalists or anything like that, let's just start with, hey, can you keep a personal budget? Do you know how much you spend and how much you make? Can you keep your books separate from personal, from professional? And let's start there when we're talking about entrepreneurial financing. Then we'll build up and talk about maybe friends or maybe microfinance. And that's as far as we go for a year or two or five. Then once we've scaled the business big enough, maybe we can look into other opportunities for financing and things. But instead of just te teaching an entrepreneurial finance, it's more process oriented. It's more staged of what do you need to learn right now? And how can we get you to that next step to expand your learning? And so that really, that experience in Uganda really changed my approach to how I now teach entrepreneurship and hopefully will going forward. Oh, definitely. So tell me a little bit about uh, That's Our Turf. What's that all about? Yeah, so that, that was, a, it was an idea that came up when I was, a, it was an accident when I was a PhD student, but it's basically, it's the idea of how much our identity or our psychology influences the way we see the world. And in this case, it's focused on competition. And so when I, when, so that's our turf, meaning what I created was these ideas of identity domain. So it's a, um, it's a restricted kind of a, it's a competitive space in which I see my identity most played out in the marketplace. So one of the examples I use in the paper, for example, is, is Honda, or I'm sorry, maybe even a better one is Volkswagen. So Volkswagen for decades had always touted themselves as the safe industry leader, the safe car leader in the industry. And so they built up their identity around safety. And so they market that, they build their cars to have extra airbags and thicker metal and all these kinds of things to make it more safe, which might go at odds. If again, you look at a Honda, maybe they want more fuel efficiency or be more environmentally friendly, something like that. Those could be at odds because a heavier car is not going to be as fuel efficient and those kinds of things. So if Honda all of a sudden starts touting its safety and saying, we actually are the safest one in the industry or whatever, Volkswagen is going to pay a special attention to that because that's encroaching on their turf, on their identity domain. And so there's more of a kind of a psychological or emotional reaction when people are stepping on your area, particularly 
something so personal and important as our identity. And so it was a theoretical paper to explore those types of relationships and seeing how competitive activity changes when we're talking about identity domains and that psychological, emotional connection, as opposed to just financial incentives or motivations to want to uh, protect one's turf. Wow, that sounds fascinating. So I know you also do some work related to entrepreneur zones. Can you talk a little bit about what those are, how they work and what you're doing in the space? Yeah, sure. So that really, again, came out of my my rebirth from the, my Uganda experience. But as I was looking at creating new entrepreneurship courses for, again, these displaced refugees in developing countries, I was talking to somebody about my book and about the work that I've done there. And they said, I need to introduce you to somebody who's doing that in our own backyard. And, and I supported the idea that I don't have to go across the world to really have meaningful change. I can go in my backyard. I can go next door. There's a lot of situations, even in the United States, even with all of our resources and advantages where people struggle and the entrepreneurial mindset can truly change people's lives. And so uh, I got introduced to a man named Dale Caldwell, and he had conceptualized this idea of the entrepreneur zone or E-zone for short. And essentially it's a geographically defined area that is really community focused on helping people be more entrepreneurial and providing special situations to help them succeed. So it might be tax incentives. It might be specialized training. That's where I come in, but it's really trying to build when we call it people up as opposed to top down, build the entrepreneurial mindset in the lives of individual citizens that will then come together as a community that can then hopefully generate better situations for themselves in their lives. So instead of giving them welfare or just handing them things, it's actually empowering them to help bring about meaningful change in the lives of themselves and the lives of those people. Yeah, I've seen that. I don't know if you're familiar with Mickey Agarwal, who founded Toshi, a bidet company, and Thinks, it's like period underwear, a variety of other ventures, incredible entrepreneur. And she talked about like the Tom's model of just like giving away things mm -hmm. can really be like detrimental in a lot of ways because it just creates sort of a benefactor uh, patron relationship that can really undermine like a place should be doing right so if you're if there's a person in a developing country that sells shoes right or makes shoes and that's all they do and then suddenly yeah. there's a boatload of tom's sneakers that come in well that person's for free, out of for free yeah. and that person's right. out of business and so what she does is really focus on ways that they can invest into creators and entrepreneurs in other countries so that you can always be focused on bottom-up solutions rather than top-down charity. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've read, I actually use Warby Parker in my class to talk about that exact mm. thing. They'll take a portion of their, so they'll give glasses, the kind of the Tom's model, but they'll give them to the entrepreneurs themselves to reduce their costs. So then the entrepreneurs can sell them to others mm. or they'll just donate a certain portion to groups that are trying to help facilitate economic development in those kinds of countries. But you're right, just simply giving things away, it, it creates awkward situations, I think, and, and this doesn't necessarily solve the problems that we're trying to solve. And it can create even other ones that, bless their heart, the people of Tom's are trying to do good, but maybe the unintended consequences of what the actual impact of that um, work would be could not make, maybe not actually solve the problems that they're trying to solve. Yeah, it's definitely a great instance of the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but it's, and it's something that people can't even fathom it. And people like start a new company and they're like, oh, I want to give this away. or I want to do that away. And it's just like, you actually need to focus on the second, third and N order effects of yep. what that action is going to do and how you're going to disrupt a potential ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly what I teach to my students in my classes as well, to think about those long-term consequences and incorporate that more into their business planning process for sure. Absolutely. Scott, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Oh boy, I, I have so many. It's hard to really pick one great one. And, and this has been my evolution of thinking as well, because for a long time, I think I would equate failing as I am a failure. 
And that I think can be really destructive thinking and really harmful, a really harmful mindset to equate, again, setbacks and things that didn't work out as translating them to I am a failure. And instead of using that self-talk and that self-actualization of just because I failed doesn't mean I'm a failure. It is a failure and something to learn from. So that's something that more in recent years I've been able to, to appreciate, I think, a little bit more the value of those failures and not equating it necessarily to the fact that I am a failure. I have failed, but I am not a failure. But again, I could think of actually yeah, a long history of that. One though might even come from my recent career. So I was, when I wrote that paper, the That's Our Turf paper, I was a PhD student in Maryland and very idealistic and very high-minded of, I'm going to make a bunch more of these papers. It's a publisher parish kind of world, but I'm going to continue this momentum and I'll get tenure and I'll be able to then really explore some of the things that I want to explore and really be able to share this knowledge that I've created and disseminated out to the world. And to date, that's my only published paper in a top the- uh, journal. And, 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 universities that hired me, they hired me because of that research potential. And it hasn't quite worked out in the way that I wanted it to. And so I had to make a choice. So I want to keep going down that tenure track path where maybe that's not my gift. Maybe that's not what I can contribute to the world. Or is there something else maybe that I can do? And that's allowed me to a certain extent to focus a lot more on teaching. And so I'm a clinical assistant professor right now. And so instead of just a tenure track uh, assistant professor, where the main responsibilities I have are in teaching. And so in the last few years, and that's only happened a couple of years ago, but that's really allowed me to have these kinds of epiphanies of, you know, don't teach the way that I used to teach entrepreneurial finance from beginning to end. Maybe there's a right place for that and maybe a right context for that, but expand my mind to think of, are there better ways to teach? And so I think, and that's become again, more of my, my focus and my passion of coming up with better ways to disseminate knowledge and to help people learn that I might not have been able to do if I were just on the tenure track. I mean, you painted a picture of typical professors and, and what tenure can do is, look, the reward is all about publishing and teaching in the class and the classroom becomes a nuisance. It becomes a, this is wasting my time. I should be out there doing research. And that negatively affects, I think, the entire experience for everybody. Instead, I've been able to embrace that classroom experience, embrace teaching, and really find joy and purpose and meaning in doing that and coming up with better ways to actually teach people. And if I were a successful published tenured professor, I might not necessarily have that that same direction or that same energy or that bandwidth to focus so much on teaching. Yeah, I think it is such an unfortunate side effect of the whole tenure system that's probably really ripe for some disruption. Because like you said, yeah, it just becomes a nuisance. And if you don't have a, if you don't invest in like a personal assistant, if you're a professor, you're just drowning. And there's just so much for you to do. And just I had various professors over the years undergrad through master's degrees through law school that it was very clear we we as students were at best like the second or third priority if we were Mm -hmm. lucky and but those professors that really put students first you can tell and it's such a it makes such a huge difference it's tremendous right like professors that come in so well prepared and some of the i grew up as a smart kid bullied a lot for being smart and everything and adults were always like wait till you get to college wait till you get to college <laughs> like, that's a flowering appreciate that much more yeah right and like i said it was like a really underwhelming experience at first and then i remember my junior year i sat down and there was a professor we just all we had was like chairs with the little chair desks and everything yeah and didn't even put those up and everyone just sat there in a circle and the professor sat down with literally nothing and took us on like a tour de force in film theory now of course like his name is like in basically every film theory book he wrote the books on film theory especially a lot of postmodernist stuff he's like the primary authority in the industry and but he could just sit there and shoot the shit and just rap to you about everything no notes no slides, fully engaged and really just connecting with each student. And it's such a powerful experience to see, oh, wait a minute, you don't need to stand up in front of the class when you're authoritative posture with PowerPoint slides that put the entire class to sleep. And that really opened my mind and then probably made me resent a lot of my other professors even more (laughs) because it was just like, 
oh, if you are actually prepared, if you actually knew this, that way, you wouldn't need any of this stuff. And there's certainly a time and a place for slides or other types of like teaching tools. But if you can make a subject come alive, just chatting, it was like going out for drinks with someone. It was like going to a dinner party and you're like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, I'm a film theorist. Would you like to hear about the lesbian theory behind like the Wizard of Oz and how it's like a lesbian allegory? But you know, there's so many different things that can be done. And I think, yeah, that that publishing focus puts such inordinate pressure on professors. And it's just a perverse incentive because it does make you worse as a professor. It does make you worse as a teacher. Yes. Some people can do it really well. And, and I've seen some examples in, in, in my experience to do that. But the incentive system is not set up to uh, reward that, right? And to, and to hmm. perpetuate that. And so it, it, the ones who can do both very well, unfortunately, are the extreme exception. Oh, absolutely. And, and I do think that that's a little bit unfortunate as a byproduct of how the tenure system is set up, for sure. And nor have I ever seen schools that actually help professors become better teachers. And so, hey, here's this new thing we've learned about connecting with students or about educating people or about making information sticky or about relating to your class or because you have some, it's like terrible public speakers. And it's just, what are you doing? And that is a byproduct of that's not why they're there. People that are there to teach are the exception. For the most part, it's the prestige and the publishing and the, oh, it's a nice three, six figure gig that you get oh i'm making 300 grand and i just have to publish one book every other year or something like that and one paper a year or something and there's nothing that's hey you have to have above a 4.5 rating out of five from your students there's no incentives there and it's you get what you incentivize for you get a shitload of books but do you have happy students and and, and you're right that's exactly how it works we we motivate by incentives absolutely and, and that's the unfortunate thing too because and, and I don't understand how it's set up, to be quite honest, because there's ratings and, and things in the U.S. News and World Report or whatever usually come from the classroom experience. So if you have a job afterwards and if you think highly of your university experience, then you're going to rate and rank that school higher than maybe others. But I don't know how what the direct connection is between research and those types of rankings or tuition dollars or anything like that. I don't know how that kind of all sets up. So it's a big mystery to even somebody who's on the inside of that. But I guess at the end of the day, find what we do well and do, you know, and become better at that. And, and then I think that it, it's a rewarding experience for me though, as, because again, we'll talk about failures as I would bang my head against the journals and the editors and the reviewers and those kinds of things trying to do something. And maybe some people think that I gave up and that I gave up too soon or too early or whatever. I like to just think that I kind of am refocusing my energies and my passions into something where I can perhaps make a bigger difference and certainly something that brings me a little bit more joy and satisfaction knowing I'm doing so. Oh, totally. So Scott, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? beyond my own <laughs> sure gotta put that gotta put it in there of course that's i guess influence how, how that kind of comes to be boy books that have really influenced my life from a religious standpoint i have to say the bible and the book of mormon certainly have influenced my spiritual life and just the way that i uh, look at things and and think about things and that certainly made a profound uh, impact uh, in my life recently i've gotten back into a book called the book of five rings by Miyamoto Musashi. He was a, a, a famous Japanese samurai back in the day and, and used that as a, a philosophical, used swordplay to teach philosophy, very similar to the art of war, if you've heard of that from Sun Tzu, as a way to, to, to influence how we think about both the military and how that kind of guides into our spiritual life. It's just an interesting um, connection there. But so I would think those are probably at the top of my list of books. I probably have to think about that question a little bit more to come up with, to articulate something a little bit better. Oh, it's all good. That samurai book sounds really cool. And yeah. I should check it out. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? I would probably maybe pose a question of how you think the entrepreneurial mindset can change your life and the world around you. I've become a little bit more 
philosophical, idealistic, perhaps, of the power of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking. So forgive me a little bit as I wax philosophic, but I, I become more in, enamored with this concept of the entrepreneur's ethic, which is something that I've, I didn't come up with the, the, the concept, but at least I'm trying to popularize the term. But thinking about the entrepreneur's ethic in that fundamentally, at its genesis, every entrepreneurial idea starts with solving somebody else's problem. And as I, as an entrepreneur, successfully solve somebody's problem, then I, in turn, become successful. And usually there's maybe some kind of financial relationship there. And I shouldn't be shy or um, embarrassed or reticent about earning some kind of financial benefit. Now, that shouldn't necessarily always be the end goal that, that I'm you know, striving for more money by doing that. But I can be more successful by solving somebody else's problem. And that can also bring other benefits beyond financial. I have a sense of accomplishment, a sense of purpose. Um, and so if I think about, for example, writing my book, now I'm not going to say that's going to change the world, but I hopefully have solved some kind of a problem, a way for people to better, who want to learn entrepreneurship, a better way to do that. And by doing so, I feel very accomplished. I feel very happy that I can put that out in the universe. But if I think about that from a more philosophical level, how that mindset can actually change the world. Think about what a different world it would be if every single day we woke up and I'll say, I, if I woke up and I said, how can I solve somebody else's problem today? Absolutely. I so I, I, I lose the selfishness. I lose my focus on myself and I try to use my skills and abilities and passions and experiences and failures to actually help somebody else. And if that's my first thought, yes, maybe I'll get a benefit down the road and that's fine because I've got to feed my family and those kinds of things. But if my first thought is how can I solve somebody else's problem, that I think is a really world-changing paradigm because now it creates a reciprocal relationship. I step outside of myself. It really emphasizes the interconnectedness of the human race and it really makes me think about somebody else first. And so if I can have a billboard that somehow some way incentivizes or stimulates that entrepreneurial ethic and that entrepreneurial mindset, I think the world would be a, a much better place that we'll understand that we're in this together and that we have this kind of reciprocal connected relationship that we can both benefit from over and over again. Oh, I totally agree. And it is weird. There's a paradox to it that I think a lot of people associate on entrepreneurship with ego when the people who are going to be most successful are the people who set ego aside and choose empathy and choose how can I help solve other problems for other people and actually listen to them about how they want it solved because a lot of people are just yes. forcing their own solutions on people. And so did you do any market research? Did you talk to anyone? No. No, I didn't. And so like, that's why you're not successful. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's just my own idea. And that's exactly it coming from the customer's perspective. And what you just said, again, beautiful philosophy for all of our aspects of life. Not, and again, entrepreneurship is just a microcosm or just a manifestation of that. But what a wonderful world it would be if I really focused on you and your problems and how to solve those problems, listening to you, being empathetic. All of those things, those are wonderful attributes and activities to be engaged in that what if it just, it went beyond simply business or entrepreneurship. And maybe that's the, you know, I don't know, chicken and egg thing, which feeds each, but that's the kind of mindset I, I want to share with the world that I want to help people understand that by being entrepreneurial, we're solving other people's problems, but also helping ourselves reach a more actualized and fulfilling life purpose, life mission, uh, life goal, whatever it happens to be. Oh, totally agree. So Scott, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. Yeah. Being a, being an accountant, being a, my MBA emphasis was finance. Of course, investment means something different in that world. But, and again, I'm obviously my experiences are very skewed, but as an educator, I think education is by far the biggest investment from a return on that investment that, that I've seen. And I don't just simply mean academia. We've, you know, spent a little while, I won't say blasting or, you know, denouncing our current education system, because there's certainly lots to, to applaud and, and to be happy about, but just simply investing in learning, however that may be, has been just eye-opening for me. And I, I love to travel. I've, to this point, I've been to 75 different countries, all 50 of the United States. 
And that to me is educational. That's learning. Because as I go to other places and I see things, I see the world from a different perspective, from people's insights and, and the way that they live their lives and the, the way they interact with each other. That has just been so eye-opening and so rewarding for not only appreciating the beauty of the world around us, and there's beauty in all cultures and foods and art and all those kinds of things all over the world, but just simply teaching me about myself too and realizing that I'm not the only person, I'm not the most important person in the world, that there's people who have problems, but there's people who are solving those problems in unique ways and have better perspectives than I do, that I can incorporate some of their uh, ideas and thoughts and, and practices and beliefs into making my world a lot better that hopefully then can I can share that with others. And so just simply investing in learning and being curious about the world around us, not only in academia, but also just people and cultures and, and the world in which we live, by far has been the best investment I've ever made. What advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice they should ignore? Always ignore somebody trying to sell you something, right? The, who knows uh, what their true intentions are? It, advice I would give is, it, and it's easier said than done, because I, I don't know how much I followed this advice when I was just entering to the world, but to not freak out about so many things. When I was 16, 17, 18, whatever, I thought so many decisions that I was making, and it can be. Now, some decisions we make have long lasting effects, but other decisions and other things that we're doing don't force us into a particular life or into a particular situation that we can't get out of. So you know, if, if I had only thought my freshman dream of being a dentist, if I thought that mindset was going to determine the rest of my life, I would be in a very different situation right now. I would not have nearly had the, the life experiences I had. And so I think it's okay to commit to something, say, yeah, I want to be a dentist and, and go in and all, all that and see what that's about. Put a poster of the tooth on your dorm wall and see if that sticks. If it doesn't stick, then fine. You're, you are entitled and licensed to change your mind. Now, obviously it can be to the extreme of that is you're very flighty and, and you don't commit and don't follow through and those kinds of things. But I think when you're young, it's okay to explore and to experiment and to think about different things in different ways. And if it doesn't work out, keep trying, keep going, looking for other majors, look for other colleges, look for other paths that might not be college. Just trying to understand that you have to live your own life to a certain extent. And you've been blessed with skills and abilities and strengths and gifts that you need to share with the world. And it can take some time to find those gifts and find where that is. I'm, I'm 48 years old and I'm just now feeling like I am finding my groove, finding my niche, finding something that really ignites my passions. That's something that I want to share with the world. It can take some time, but enjoy the journey as you do that. And uh, don't get stuck doing something just because it's easy, just because it's lucrative, or just because it's something that somebody else wants you to do. Have that opportunity to explore new possibilities, and you might be surprised with uh, where you end up and what you might find. Oh, definitely. Totally agree. Scott, this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation, and that does bring me to my final question of the day. Yeah. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Wow, that's a deep one. I The kindest thing anyone has ever done for me. I think simply is supported me and believed that I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. I think about my parents I might get even emotional as I think about this. Where my dad was, he was career military. He was in the army for 25 years, had a very kind of disciplined approach to life and a very determined, I think, conception of what he thought my life could be or what he wanted my life to be. And I didn't quite fit into that mold. And I know that was hard for him to accept that I would be my own person, that I would branch out because that wasn't quite his experience. But he never made, and he was one, he was not shy to, to tell me what his opinion was, but he always, along with that opinion, would give me the freedom to make those choices and decisions myself and support me then in what it was that I wanted to do. So one of the greatest things I remember when I, I was in a, yeah, I was at Honeywell and I was on the track a career path and all of these great executive training programs and all these kinds of things. And I wasn't, I didn't feel like that was the path that I really wanted to be on. I wanted to go be a teacher. I wanted to be a professor. And he was the kind of go to a company, build a pension, work for them for 30 years, and you, you can have whatever career you want to do. And I left that and I went into academia and he didn't want me to do that. 
But once I decided to do that, once I was doing that, he bought me a book and it was a book uh, by Thomas Friedman called The World is Flat, which was a very kind of a strategic look at the world and those kinds of things. And he said, use this book in your PhD studies, use this book to learn something and think about the world in a different way. And even though I knew he didn't agree with what I was doing and he didn't, that wasn't his first choice, he was willing to support that decision. And sorry, I am getting emotional, but my father passed away the second week of my PhD program. And so he never got the opportunity to see the joy and the happiness that came from that journey and to see the kind of person I became because of those choices that I made that he supported me in. And so just, um, sorry, my allergies really kicking in a little bit here, just the kindness to let me be my own person, even if it's not the kind of person that he necessarily wanted me to be, as long as I was happy, as long as I was doing something that's making the world a better place, he was willing to support me in doing that. My mom's the same. I don't mean to pass over. My parents together really supported me and gave me that kindness of finding my own path and teaching me the foundations of being a good person. And then whatever I was going to do, they knew I would be successful, not just financially successful, but happy and doing something that was meaningful for other people. Big shout out to my parents for teaching me good things and then for getting out of my way and letting me learn some of those things myself as well. Wow, that's a beautiful answer. So powerful. You're very lucky to have had that experience. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate this time too. I appreciate the questions and maybe appreciate what I have and the opportunities I have. I look forward to having other opportunities to share my message, share my voice, and to learn from others around me as well. So I really appreciate this time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you. You as well. Take care. too. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, making unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.